I've noticed an awful lot of people are becoming more religious as of late. They're building up a fervor for the religious style of life. They're getting much more into the idea of going back to tradition. And I think the archetypal example of this, or the biggest example of this, would be Andrew Tate publicly converting to Islam. You have people, famous people like Sneeko following in his footsteps. And of course, not just Tate and Islam, but many people I've met online who are ardent Christians, very, very serious about their religion. And on top of that, I've met loads of people who are actually seriously going back to paganism. They're organizing pagan communities. I've been speaking to some of these as well. And they're going out into the, the forests and they're, you know, organizing their little farming communities and getting back in touch with the old gods, summoning Odin once again, bringing down the power. Hopefully they sort out the Irish gods and we'll, we'll all get drunk with them as well and see what happens. But overall, I'm seeing this massive shift, this massive trend, this massive rise of this religious mood. Now, it's interesting because I don't see this so much in real life. In real life, religion doesn't seem to be that much of a factor. But I do know in my experience, whenever something starts to build up a bit of energy online, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it means that it's about to become a thing in real life an awful lot more. So what I've decided to talk to you about today is the psychology of religion, the big picture perspective on what a religion is, what it is supposed to do, and why people are drawn to it. I'm not going to tell you to follow any specific religion. I'm not going to tell you which denomination of Christianity is the right one or the wrong one. I'm simply going to present to you some of my thoughts and some of my facts. It will be a bit of a rant. So strap yourself in. Strap yourself in and be prepared to experience boyism at its highest amount of power. So the structure that I have in my head is first I'm going to begin with the big principles, the big picture perspective, what a religion is supposed to do psychologically, how it helps you in your life, why you would be religious, what type of advantages it would bring, and maybe what type of disadvantages it would bring. And then later, after that section, I'm going to talk to you about the specific religions. I'm going to talk to you about some thoughts on Islam, some thoughts on Christianity, some thoughts on modernist psychology and Nietzscheanism, and then some thoughts on paganism and things like this. So as I said, buckle up, here we go. Now, right out of the gate, the first thing I want to get very clear at the foundational level is why it would be healthy for you to be religious. Why religion can lead you towards life. As Nietzsche would say, we want to be life-affirming. We want to be participating in life. We don't want to be denying life and becoming a nihilist. We don't want to be escaping life and not participating in life. We don't want to live within a death cult. Why would a religion be useful for this? Now, what's interesting is that in order for you to understand this or get clear on that question, you actually need to brush away an awful lot of the blatherbraining about truth. Truth really gets in the way of this an awful lot. Now, that's we'll get to this later. That's a big sin for the monotheistic religions of Christianity and Islam. But again, too complicated for the time being. Instead, think more directly about what leads towards life. Life is not something that you create inside of your head with declarations and abstract thought and stuff like this. Life is something that you do. Life is something that you live. Life is something that you participate in. And one of the best places you can come across a great expression of this is from Jonathan Peugeot, who's an Ethan, Ethan, <laughs> who's that dude? Eastern Orthodox Christian. But I really love his perspective on it because he always um, like kind of pushes back against people who try to get in these bickering arguments about truth and stuff like this. And he says, shut up with all that nonsense. You know, say I'm a Nietzschean pagan or something like this and I come and talk to him and I'm like, oh, let's talk about metaphysics. He's like, fuck off, like the bullshit. Look, your problem is not that you're, you don't have the truth or you have the truth and we don't have it. Your problem is that, you know, Nietzscheanism has no church. Nietzscheanism is not something that you can participate in that brings you towards life. It's just a load of philosophy selling. If you want to be a Nietzschean, you know, you sit around and you have to read books all day. Now, 
what do these actions lead to in your life compare this to a church what happens if you go and participate in a church sometimes you can go to like a catholic church and the truth is not brought up at all they're like we're ne you're never going to hear the truth we have the truth in this book and you stupid little laity plebs you just fucking show up and do what we tell you to do the truth is not not a part of the church at all instead they just get you to go through all these rituals you'll notice they get you to do things now these rituals are not something to cast aside a lot of people like to think they're better than them but these rituals are incredibly deep and profound. You go in and you are baptized, you're introduced into a community. Now, a community is a network of people, and humans are tribal animals. You get introduced to all these people who will help you, who will be your friend, who will take care of you, who will give you jobs, who will introduce you into the community. Now, you're not going to get that out of a Nietzsche book. You're not going to get that out of Beyond Good and Evil. You might get some interesting perspectives in the world, but in Beyond Good and Evil, you know, there's no, there's no friends, there's no community, there's no guys who's going to give you a bit of cash if you put up some fences for him, if you do sales for his business. There's none of that. That's not good. That's not life. That's you being stuck reading a book and having nothing going for yourself. And then on top of this, you continue to participate in this church. You're part of this community. And you might find a beautiful girl in there. And then, of course, the community will say, well, you know, get married with her. And of course, if you're a Nietzsche cell, you're probably not going to find any girls in Beyond Good and Evil. Maybe you can go to the Nietzsche book club and get some Nietzsche girlfriend or something like this. But she might be a degenerate nihilist. She might be some crazy bitch who's like, I don't know, man, I just want to I just want to like become the uber wench. I want to become the, the superwoman. I want to get I want to get jacked on steroids. And I want to be like uh, that, that girl that, you know, the fitness girls that crush people's heads between their thighs as they're screaming, mommy, squish me to them or something like this. I don't know. Maybe that would be fun. But is that really a wife? Is that the trad wife that you want? You go participate in a Christian church and there might be that beautiful girl. And maybe you, you, you know, the sparkle in your eye, you share and then you go, go get married. Now, what happens there? This ritual of marriage is encouraged by the church, by the community. And all of a sudden now you're married and you have kids and that's life succeeding on its most fundamental level. Life is succeeding. You've created children. You've propagated yourself. That's a big win. That's very interesting. And then say if your parents die, they give you a funeral. It helps you process this. It's very psychologically sophisticated. If your parents die and you read Nietzsche and Beyond Good and Evil, you might actually run a danger of intellectualizing something that's an emotional experience. You, may, you must sit down and confront the reality of what happened and feel it and allow yourself to process it. And you'll find within a church, there's a whole community helping you go through this. There's a whole community doing, helping you experience death and put your, you know, get closure on the experience and whatnot. And, and then you have all these things as well. If you're an artist, for example, say you go to a church in a community and it's, it's a part, you're a part of the Christian church, the Ethan Eastern Orthodox Church. God damn, my mouth is not working. There's this whole symbolic language that they have. Jonathan Joe is always ranting about this, you know, this big symbolic language of Christ, of the Christian tradition. And if you're an artist, this is fantastic because you don't have to go in and figure out from the ground up a new symbolic language. That alone is an artistic project that would basically take a lifetime. If you're reading Nietzsche and you're like, we're in the age of nihilism, you say, oh, we'll have to build up this new symbolic language, these, all these new big ideas. And that's step one. And then you need to go and take all these big ideas and represent them as art. And that's step two. And to be, become a good artist takes a lifetime. You have to sit down and perfect the, the skills that you're trying to manifest in order to produce that art. So you go into a Christian church and they already have all that in place. You're like the Renaissance artist. 
You don't have to. F- you don't have to create the symbolic language. You can just participate in this already existing, stable, long-term symbolic language and make beautiful art of it. And you can fulfill yourself through this. You can watch yourself fulfill your potential through that. And that's actually deeply healing. You're liberated from this intellectual quest and mining your unconscious for s- symbolic dreams and never producing the art that kind of defines your life. And these are big questions to ask yourself because again, you only get one life. You're only going to have 80 years if you're lucky on this earth. And if you spend the first 50 of them reading Nietzsche or reading philosophy and getting stuck in your head and you don't get married, you try to build this symbolic world and you never actually learn the skills necessary to represent it in the world and never you have the time to do this. You're sterilized as an artist. You just end up as some sort of intellectual preparing a symbolic language for somebody else. You, um, you struggle maybe to process problems with like people dying and whatnot. And all of this stuff is very, very serious. Even if you have mental health issues or struggles in this way, there's priests there who operate essentially as like psychotherapists, but for free, which is even crazier when you think about it. And so you can go into them and they can help you process your experience for the world and and work with these types of things. It's like, well, this living religion is very powerful. It's very fundamentally powerful. Now, I want you to brush out the idea of denominations because you'll notice that all religions across the world do these basic functions. Islam does this. Catholicism does this. Eastern, I can't pronounce that word, man. And the Orthodox Church does this too. Protestantism does this. They all have this stuff in place. Maybe there's like, you know, the Protestants might be weaker in the symbolic language, but they might be stronger on getting people to, you know, organize their communities and keeping them tight-knit. The Catholic Church might be better at like the confession and the therapy and stuff. Whatever it is, there's differences. But that stuff doesn't matter because the fundamental goal is this you interacting with something that is a ritualized experience of the world. Now contrast this with the death cult that has permeated modern Western culture. You go to the cities, you go to media, you listen to media, and they're not promoting these rituals for people. They're not promoting this idea of have kids, instead they're telling you to get abortions. They're not promoting this idea of get married and have stable relationships. Instead, you go to these cities and the communities that you'll participate in will be a load of like party heads and drug addicts and they'll all be having like polyamorous relationships with each, with each other and stuff like this. And the the it's not as firm, it's not as straightforward. The life paths are not as established as what you would find in, for example, a religious community. And you participate in those communities and you'll very quickly find yourself as like a 40-year-old girl boss or a 40-year-old pickup artist guy with no kids, no family, none of these things. You will have not succeeded in the basic fundamentals of life because you have no rituals and no community pressuring you into that path, trying to beat your head into submission and get you to do the things that are actually better for you than you think. They're not getting you to participate in the archetypal experiences of mankind and life, as Carl Jung would often be saying. You know, you do these things like get married. You do these things like participate in a funeral. You do these things like confession. You do these things because they actually have a very significant effect on you. This is the reason why we've evolved to do them. This is the reason why marriage is a human universal and, you know, funerals are a human universal is because it's very significant to participate in these things. And to take those out of your life and become one of these Reddit atheists is essentially... 
and not replacing them with something is essentially a recipe for disaster. You're actually going to war against life itself, the things that we've evolved to keep us on the track of life. It's very unwise the more you begin to think about it. You're moving away from a living religion with its living rituals and its living culture to essentially a sterile death cult. And what do you think is going to happen with that? Maybe you're intellectually free to believe what you want. This is what all the new atheists say. You know, you're intellectually free to think what you want to think and you don't have to believe that Yahweh is coming down to beat you up in the middle of the night if you, if you, you know, touch yourself or something like this. But you end up sterile. You end up without anything as a consequence. You end up, you know, getting cuckolded in a polyamorous relationship or something like this. And that's not a victory. That's not good. That's something you really have to contend with. So let me get one thing clear before we go forward. We talk an awful lot about Nietzsche and about psychology and about Jung in this channel. But do not make the mistake to think that that is some type of end in and of itself. That's some type of victory. You are ultimately here to live. Knowledge is a supplement. It is a profound addition to your character that can make you much more interesting and powerful. But if it does not serve life, this is actually a Nietzschean idea in and of itself. If it does not serve life, you're making a mistake. And oftentimes reading books is not participating in the world. Words are not where life happens. The things that you must do in order to live, such as procreate, such as be a creative artist, such as be somebody who has a future, such as be somebody who is successful, who builds a strong character, who is a part of a strong community that has a future, that is politically relevant and active. This stuff does not happen by reading beyond good and evil. This does not happen by learning off quotes from Nietzsche's aphorism sections, by knowing what Jung meant by archetypes. None of that stuff is going to contribute that dramatically to what you need to do. Instead, you must participate in the world. You must participate in life and get very, very clear about that. And so all this builds up to another very big principle about understanding religion quite closely related. Religion is about bringing you towards life and it is also about making sure that you and the tribe survive as a whole. Religion is an organizational tool to lead a large group of people towards success. This is what it is trying to do. Now, the way it does that, we can pontificate about that later, but this is the fundamentals that we must understand. And belief in God this idea at the center of all these religions, belief that there's a higher power organizing all this and giving your life a purpose and a plan and encouraging you to participate in things like marriage and participate in the church and participate in the community and, and be good towards the community, which means being, you know, pro-moral towards the herd around you, the, com the community around them. These are all very wise things to do. And God is the thing that holds it all together. God, the belief in God is a signal of health in the vast majority of people. That's a big shocking statement, but this is the truth. When somebody believes in God, they believe in the God of their church. This is a signal that they're participating in something that has long-term thinking. You know, God, I believe in him. Therefore, there is a plan for my life. There is a goal for my life. And therefore, I must act in this restrictive way. I must control my sexual impulses and then, you know, channel it into a ritualized marriage so that I can produce children. I must participate in the community and act moral towards this community and try to build up this community. I must participate in this church and look at this church as this thing that God has created for me that I must worship and protect and build into a cathedral like all the Europeans used to do. All of this stuff is about you digging your roots down into reality and building things, manifesting your creative power, releasing life into the world and creating art, creating beautiful buildings, creating a strong network and a community creating children, creating families. God is the thing that holds that all together. God is the fundamental belief that motivates people towards this. Now, we have some problems because you have to get truth out of the way a little bit here because 
your belief about the God or the one true God, none of that stuff is actually relevant. You know, Islam has led loads of people towards life with their belief in Allah, and they'll tell you it's the one truth. But then the Christians will tell you that it's completely fake. Allah is not correct at all. And they'll say that, no, our God, our Christian God is the correct one. But the thing is, is that Christianity has led loads of people to life as well. So is as, as Islam. It has worked. Paganism all throughout, you know, the ancient world led people towards life. And they believed in gods as well. You know, the Romans believed in Jupiter. The Norse believed in Woden. It, it was all there. And the fundamental rituals that were necessary to help these people survive were, were all there and they all functioned. And the idea of truth, of the true God or the, the correct worship, none of that stuff was, was present and it didn't need to be present because the purpose of religion is not truth. In fact, this is a grave mistake I think an awful lot of the monotheistic religions are going to have a bit of a problem with because they've almost shot themselves in the foot. The thing that religion does that people find so valuable that I think an awful lot of people are going back to could be attributed more to tradition than specific declarations of truth that people get in religions. Now, I'll clear that idea up for you now. So if you go back to ancient European pagans, you go back to the Norse, they didn't have a concept called religion. They called their religion tradition. That's all they said. They just said, it's our tradition. You know, it's what we do. And it's a weird thing for us to understand. The religion never had this feeling inside of it that it needed to be declared as true. There was this whole attachment to truth was not really as strong as people make it out to be. It's, it's a weird way of thinking about these absolute declarations of truth. The Romans, the same thing. They had actually the word religio comes from Roman culture, but in some sense, what religio means is almost like habit or ritual. It's closer to that idea than it is to some type of notion of declarations. In fact, when the Jews and the Christians showed up in Rome, the Romans saw them as atheists. They couldn't really wrap their heads around what was being presented to them. They were saying, like, this doesn't make any sense. This is not what a religion is. Like, you're sort of going against the nature of reality itself, as far as we can see, saying that there's some God in some other place that is the absolute truth. And it's like, well, you know, that, that's how you do religion. And it's like, well, we, we were perfectly fine. Rome is functioning perfectly fine, following on with the traditions and the religio. And you could even make the argument, an awful lot of people say, oh, Rome fell because it was degenerate. But you could say that Rome fell because it fell away from its traditions. It fell away from the these rituals that were holding it together as it got too rich and too wealthy. It lost, you know, connection to the traditions, very similar to what you're seeing now. And then the whole thing broke down and fell apart. And there was nothing could stop that from happening. Like even Christianity comes in and it can't save it. Rome collapses nonetheless because of this problem of them running away from life and becoming essentially a death cult. And but before, you know, that happened, their traditions held them together and they did absolutely fine. And this is really important to stress because you see an awful lot of people now swinging back to things like religion. They swing back in a reactionary way. They want to come back to something that's stable because they're in these death cults. You know, Sneeko's wandering around and he finds himself watching his girlfriend get screwed. And, you know, he's he's a young kid. He's been influenced by the, the modern death cult. And he finds himself sitting there looking at this happened to his girlfriend. And then maybe a couple of months later, a couple of years later, he actually realizes what was happening. It's like, I was watching myself get cooked. Like, that's pathetic. What am I doing? How, how, have I, how have I reached this place? And so there's this big snapback. There's this big reaction and rejection against this. And they say, I want to go towards something that's going to try to lead me towards life. I'm not smarter than reality itself. The culture I've grown up in has instantiated me with negative values that are not helping me, that are making me live out a death cult, that are going to leave me 
sterile, that are going to leave me humiliating myself and doing horrendous things that are embarrassing and bad for my heart. I'm going to be stuck watching porn and I'm going to be stuck with OnlyFans girlfriends. It's, it's like, I don't want that anymore. And so they try to reach for something that is life-giving, that is bringing them back to life. And of course, what they're reaching for is tradition. But this is where this, this is, you know, the shopping center of spiritual beliefs becomes a big issue because you can get that in almost anything. You could get it by going to Islam. You can convert to Islam and you will find these traditions perfectly fine. You will come back and you will connect with marriage. You will connect with, you know, funerals. You connect with a large community. You will connect with all these things. These, this can perfectly provide this. This is fantastic. You could go back to European paganism. I've spoken to loads of them and they run it as efficiently as any Christian church I've seen. They have their rituals. They have um, their communities. They have their temples. They have all these beautiful families with like eight, I've seen dudes with 10 children, you know, pumping them out, absolute machine. And they're hanging around, they're building things together. They're like, you know, talking to each other. They're creating, they've got this whole roster of symbolic stories from, um, from the Norse mythology that there's usually Norse mythology god damn I hope they don't start building longboats I swear to god if they come try to steal my monasteries I'll have to you'll, the boyo the boyo channel will start turning into this militaristic anti-viking propaganda channel or something like this but they're um they're doing it as well and they all seem happy they all seem healthy they all seem they're very good to each other they're moral they take care of each other everything's there then I see all these people go into Christianity some guys become Protestant not as many as you'd think but I see some do do it and they live perfectly fine they find a beautiful girl and they make a family and they show up to church and they build this beautiful community and they all look very very healthy and happy I see Catholics achieve the same thing they go to Latin Mass they meet all these Catholics who have a great set of values who are all beautiful who make beautiful kids and they have this strong community where they all work together I see the orthodox the, the ortho bros do fantastic as well like I was just talking about Pajot he does absolutely brilliant he really actually understands this in a fundamental level and you see this with all these denominations all these versions they all work they all bring you back to what you actually need which is the rejection of the modern death cult and the return to a lifestyle that is connecting you to tradition connecting you to the rituals that lead towards life these fundamental rituals that lead towards life and an awful lot of these involve things like commitment you know commitment to a girl commitment to make a family or if you're muslim if you want you know commitment to a couple of girls and making a very very large family whatever it is that you want to do they all lead you there that's what's important and so an awful lot of this talk you're, you're seeing it start to show up again which is very unwise and unintelligent. Peugeot has good instincts on this, where people are bickering. You know, you're starting to see now that these influencers are getting into Islam and they're saying Islam is the truth. And you see these Orthodox guys and being like, Orthodox is the truth. And then you see the Catholics and being like, the Catholic Church is going through its purge, but it is actually the truth. It's like, all right, look, you can start bickering about these truth declarations all you want. The pagans do it too. They're like, oh, Christianity is subverted the way. It's like, look, you can bicker about this stuff all you want. That's fine. But the thing that you're actually all looking for is this tradition. That's what you're trying to connect to because that's what leads towards life. And the truth declarations, they're certainly a part of it. We'll get into it now. But if people overemphasize that without understanding the fundamental, without understanding what actually matters, what's the big deal. And religious psychosis, religious the, the worst part of religion is how people get neurotic about these beliefs, thinking that that's the important thing. You need to get into this bickering war about which belief is right and all these types of things. Now, what's very interesting thing is that in the ancient world this was not necessarily how religion worked at all there was this far more sincere understanding of religion among Rome where they believed that all religions were you know, all cults they didn't call them religions all cults all these um, processes of worship were in some sense integrated and married together and connected and, and different versions of themselves 
And there was no idea that like you're, you'd never have something like a religious war because they always understood that these wars were fundamentally tribal. They always understood that Rome was carrying Jupiter and competing against Zeus or Woden or the, the Irish gods or the British gods, the Albion gods or Yahweh down in Judea. They, they all understood that stuff. And so their idea was not to sit around and bicker about which religion is true. That's just, you know, that's soft boy stuff. That's talk instead of action. The Romans would come down and prove that Jupiter was the real deal by you know, burning your, building a wall around your city and burning it to the ground and then showing you that we're now going to erect Jupiter in your temple because he's clearly the real deal because he's our super soul and we have now conquered you and you're now, you've clearly been cucked by us. So it's clear that our God is the real deal. We've decided this in reality. We're not going to sit around and bicker and talk about truth. That's just silly stuff as far as we're concerned. But put all that stuff aside because it's theology nonsense and understand that fundamental. Tradition is about engaging with the rituals of life. The perspective you take on the world comes after, actually. The declarations about truth comes after. It's not even as significant as people make it out to be. And if you miss this fundamental, if you don't understand even why you're getting into religion, you're not getting into it because of the declarations of truth. If you wanted to get into declarations of truth, you would become a scientist. You would become a social scientist if you really cared about people that much, which you don't. Instead, you're doing it because you want life and you see the craziness going on in your society and you misinterpreted. You think it's something to do with people and truth. It's really to do with people not committing to actions and habits that lead them towards life. Now, my friends, this rant is only just starting. Next, we must talk about the science of God, because there's this study that people did where they started to attach magnets to people's brains and they discovered that there's a part of the brain that you can you know, zap, big zap attaches the magnets and it can turn off this part of your brain and this shuts off belief in God, or if you stimulate it, it switches up your belief in God. And so they started to, f to find a couple of interesting things about this that, again, enhance what we're talking about here. So first of all, um, when, you're, when they use the magnets to stimulate your belief in God, you start to believe that there's um, entities in the room, first of all, that are talking to you. And you start to develop this idea that... Um, the your people your in group i guess you can call it you know your community so think about your church your group of your tribe around you you start to develop very favorable defensive feelings towards them and this part of your brain is also the threat detection center of your brain so this is the part of your brain that scans the world and says not me not my friend not good me my friend our team Okay, and so when that's stimulated, God becomes when God is active in your brain. You have this way more identification with who you are and your people and your your crew and your team, and this disgust with people out there. And so when you're in more danger and you're around more threats, you tend to become more godly. And I think this kind of tells you an awful lot about what's going on. People have begun to threaten people in the West an awful lot more. You're seeing more and more um, egregious mistakes by the media and the state and, and malevolent actions where they're starting to really inter in, you know, interfere with people's lives and do things that are very threatening and, and speak very, very crudely and horribly about Western people. And so an awful lot of Western people are reacting very, very, you know, they're, they're sensing actual danger. They're beginning to feel paranoid about what the state is doing. And so, of course, these people are going to start to say, I need a fucking try. I need a crew that I can identify with, that I can rely on in hard times. And their minds are switching on. And so that part is searching for a group of people. And they're like, we'll bind with this oversoul here and we'll integrate with this community. I'll participate in its rituals. And then, boom, I have a team that's on my side. It's in some sense, people are getting stimulated to go this direction and power to them. You know, like if you're threatening someone 
and it makes them get into this defensive situation. Well, you're the problem, not them. They're just doing what's smart. They're making sure that they live and they survive. And in some sense, this stress and this fear is actually very, very good for them because they end up breaking out of these city lives or these, you know, liberal death cult lives and going and participating in, in life. They go and they, you know, make their family and they don't end up sterile and whatnot. And of course, this is what you see with this magnet experiment where you turn off that part of your brain. You turn off that part of your brain where God is and you stop believing in the higher power and you develop a, it's almost like you don't detect threats as well. And you develop a preference for people outside of you, you become in some sense more open-minded, I guess you could say. And you become more explorative because you, you don't have as much threat detection. And so you can kind of search into the world a little bit more and you're, you're sort of exploring out there in this way. You become a, an, an open-minded, progressive, liberal type thing. Now, I actually think I'm very much this type of character like I really do sort of like like exploring and seeing other things as well but of course you have to be able to see the downsides of this the mistakes of this you have to be able to see and um, this is not a total way of seeing the world you have to actually see the inherent stupidity and weakness or maybe I should say because I think this is the right word for it the naivety present present in this you um you were actually betraying your tribe in favor of the outgroup you're betraying them because think about this you grow up in the modern west like at the end of Rome it's this era of abundance. Everybody is rich and healthy and happy. There is no real threats. There's no dragons. There's no tribes coming in to invade us. There's no enemies. There's no reasons for us to feel threats. And so this part of our brain is just not that active that much. And so you start to not care so much about God. What's this? Like, why would I need God? There's all these stories in the Bible about being strict and, and rituals and all this. But it's like, well, who, who needs that stuff? We're, we're happy. We're rich. We're wealthy. It's, it's all good. And so you develop this lower threat detection and you have all this time to kind of stew around and, you know, get interested in what is outside and, you know, the, the fancy exotic things from the East or something like this, whatever it is. This is what the Romans used to always do, import cults from the East or whatever they conquered in Gaul. And there becomes this fascination with the other and the fascination, the open-mindedness with the outside because the threat detection center is essentially turned off. And this becomes betrayal of God. And then you start to welcome in all these other cultures and this starts to chew up and distort your morality and you stop fighting for your tribe and then your tribe's coherence breaks down. And of course, what happens then at that point? You can't defend yourself. You don't know what your identity is. You don't know what you stand for anymore. And the entire project implodes. And this is what happens in Rome. You see this. They all become decadent, obsessed with other cults, and they stop fighting for Rome. They stop caring about Rome, per se. And their tradition breaks down. This is what the, all the Romans writers spoke about. And then it just becomes chaos. There's this religious fervor. And then the entire thing just implodes in and of itself. The exact same thing happens in the Bible with um, Israel. Israel, you know, David and all the boys, Solomon and all the boys, they conquer and they become badasses. Solomon stands at the peak of it. He's Superman. He's conquered the entire world. He starts to take all the girls from all across the world and he starts to import all these these women from his, his um from his various allies and they begin to you know he's rich he's successful and they begin to suggest to him like oh let's try this uh, cool cult here let's try a little bit of Moloch worship here let's try this and Solomon's like yeah let's let's uh, let's let's check it out let's see what happens and of course he lets in these other cults and he betrays Yahweh he doesn't you know they don't care as much they're not they're not too worried about following the laws of Israel and of course this is when Israel collapses this is when Israel gets punished because they betray their their identity the breakdown of their energy happens and then every 
everything falls apart. And you're seeing the exact same thing in the West. We go through the abundance of the 20th century, and then it becomes decadence towards the end of it. It becomes, we become deracinated. We, and you see everybody sorts of de develop this attitude, this love for the other, this despising of, of what we are and our tribe and our identity. And then of course, this leads to the breakdown in the, the moral code among ourselves and the decadence and all these problems. And the, the as we said, the lust for the other, other and the weird and the different and the, the forgetting of God, the very famous one, like people throw away God and look at everything now. Everything becomes this chaos and this mess and it looks like we're on the precipice of a collapse. And next, things get very interesting. We're about to talk about sex. We're about to talk about getting hot and heavy. Talking about pulling, you know, chicks, pu pulling some hotties, pulling some trad wives. Because religion is about sex, very fundamentally. Because sex is life. Sex is the most fundamental thing that leads towards life. Without sex, there is no life. I don't want to be weird, but the way you were created is your mom and your dad, things happened. Things went down. They got hot and heavy. I don't, I don't want to go into details, bit, bit degen. It only happened once, believe me, that was just the one time it happened to make you, that's all, that's how it worked. You're all good. But yeah, it went down, man. And if you want to make kids, if you want to be the next person to contribute towards that, look, I'm afraid you're going to have to get messy. You're going to have to exchange some juices. You know, it's sort of like, all right, look, it's the way the world works. Why God made things this way? I don't know. I'm not the, I'm not the king of the world here. I'm not the guy who ran the plan, but you know, it's part of life, so. Now, your, your sexuality, Sex is incredibly important because, as I said, this is how we make children. This is how life wins. Sex is the ultimate symbol of victory for life. Orgasm specifically is the reward that life gives you for successfully having sex with a beautiful person. This is, life is saying to you, well fucking done. <laughs> like that, like patting the top of the head, good boy, let's go. You are done, this is what we're looking for. Sex is pleasurable and rewarding for a reason, because it is right, it is correct, it is success, it is victory. Sex is victory. When you get to have sex with a beautiful girl and nobody else does and you get to you know, impregnate her and inside of her womb, your potential and your future grows, that is a massive victory for you. Your DNA life succeeds through you. And you'll see an awful lot of people who don't have sex, it's crushing on them. They think there's something wrong with them. They, um, they, they feel like a failure because in some sense they are. It is the failure of life. Now, when you think about sex and life, it goes an awful lot beyond mere sex. So for example, think of morality. I think morality is more relevant when it comes to sexuality than anything. This is where I notice when people talk about morality and they want to have firm morality and they stomp their feet and they're like, everything must be objective and there must be a law and all this. And then you usually ask them about this and they're, they're talking about either, you know, you don't stick your dick in somebody else's butt or you don't masturbate or you don't watch porn or you don't have sex outside of marriage. It's, it's very sex orientated. Morality is very, very heavily coded on sex. And I think it's obviously sex is extremely emotional for people and people want to have really firm rules around it and I think there's wisdom in having rules around sex I actually think that's smart and you can you can understand why because if you are profligate if you are you know you liberate the rules around sex sex doesn't actually become healthy towards life you you develop these two different grades of life you know you have the the I think they're called um mayfly you know a mayfly so what a mayfly does is mayfly is like born in a river and it pops out and it goes and it just bangs everything 
and then it dies and then it falls back in the river and it's dead and then they propagate and the you know there's like a million baby mayflies made and they all fly around and then they bang everything and then they die and then they do that and you know this is the kind of process that happens and so their strategy is they don't play the long game at all man they're like some dude out in the club he's like blasted off his tits on coke and he's like i am getting i'm smashing like 10 people in the bathroom tonight man i gotta go and what you see there is this impulsive they call it a i think it's an or strategy you know they they go impulsive they they go shotgun mode they try to spread the wild oats they're not going to commit to being a father for anything they're not going to go and build any long-term relationships none of that stuff i'm going to go out there and i'm going to nail as much as i possibly can and spread that energy as far and wide as i can and there's an incentive inside of man to pursue things this way. During times of war, apparently our behaviors, behaviors modulate more towards those types of behaviors. Prostitution obviously becomes more um, more, more prominent. People obviously don't form relationships in war zones and stuff like this. And people, um, sex becomes more um, short term. The thinking on it, in it becomes more short term. But short term does not necessarily lead towards life. It is a form of achieving life. But long-term is much more sophisticated and much more supportive of long-term life. The more long-term you can make something, the more powerful it is. Think about the difference between you, a man, and even like your pets, you know? Your dog's life is gonna be 10 years. That's actually not, it's, only, it's, it's barely a fraction of your life. You're, you're so much more of a sophisticated being than they are. And like, I love, I love the dog. We all love our dogs around here. We all love, I'm not sure about cats. Cats are a bit sus. But, you know, we, we love our pets. Pets are cool. And this is what you see with them is that they have, they have short lifespans. Insects, you know, a cockroach is a couple of months that he's alive. And you are, you're like an angel compared to them. Like, think of if you met some entity that lived for a thousand years. This is what you are like to a dog. A dog can barely comprehend this stuff. You know, you he, he ages so fast and you are the same all the time. You're like an elf in Lord of the Rings and he's like some hobbit or something like this. And this is the sophistication of man. Man is a long-term entity. Man lives very, 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 very long. And an awful lot of our habits need to be designed around this as well, because even when we're making our children, you know, our children, by the time our children mature, most dogs will have died, you know, in 12, 14 years. That's the lifespan of a, of a, a lower animal. Lowers rude because the dog. I'm sorry, dogs. I'm sorry, my guys. Um, uh, a different animal, you know. That's the lifespan of something like a canine, and our long-term version of living is very sophisticated for us to build these bigger brains, for us to be more sophisticated entities, for us to plan much further in the future. And so our sexual relationships need to follow along with this as well. Long-term thinking are key towards sexual relationships. And it's very hard to think about sex in a long-term way because sex is fundamentally impulsive. So how do you get people to regulate their sexuality and do it in a long-term way and not castrate them? This is a big problem with religion. There's this impulse inside of people because sex is so emotional and so intense that they want to be castrated. They want to get rid of their sexuality because they can't control their emotions and they don't understand their emotions. This is a big problem with highly restrictive um, aspects of like monotheistic religions, especially Christianity, where, um, I shouldn't say especially, but it comes up in Christianity an awful lot, where there, there is this sort of fear of sex as this demonic thing. And you see an awful lot of early Christian, the early Christian church, for example, had this issue where people were castrating themselves because Jesus said, if your eye offends you, cut out your eye. And then of course the next logical conclusion is is like well if you're if you're getting rowdy you better cut it off champ and this issue with 
sexuality is a big deal because you'll have some people who can't control it and so they will they will like do extreme things and how do, how do you how do you deal for example with an incel like an incel is a big question how do you deal with somebody who's not sexually charismatic or really struggles with girls or something like this well of course the sophistication of a religion like christianity and like all all these these large sophisticated religions they would have institutions of priests or imams where you could be become uh a uh, member of the priesthood or an intellectual and you have a path towards celibacy you could join a monastery for example in, in Christianity and you could be an incel out there and of course there'd be no there'd be no horrible thing said about you you won't be insulted for being an incel because that is a very nasty thing to do to somebody you come across a, a beta male guy and he's incredibly smart incredibly sensitive incredibly intelligent but he's not you know he's not physically imposing he's not like a big badass he's not a juicy handsome chad he's not like he's not like me he's not like uber boyo you know he's not he's not covered in a she's just drenched in muscles she doesn't have testosterone flowing out of his ears he's um but he's very smart you know he's very very introspective and he could contribute an awful lot to the world he could write great philosophy he could um make great art he could uh, maybe you know study engineering or something like this and what do you do with this this guy do you sit around and you make fun of him do you let women do you let women in your community like make fun, insult him Oh, you stupid incel! Oh, you loser! Like that's a horrible thing to do to a character like this. He he didn't choose to be what he is, you know. Maybe he can improve himself. Maybe you can take him to the gym. But you could also say, well, you know, like maybe this guy just needs to understand. Like maybe he's not built for the sexual endeavor. And maybe we could give him a dignified way that he can embrace this. This is very intelligent from Christianity. We could say to him, go to the monastery and be with God. You know, and you focus on the high intellectual things. Nietzsche would talk about this, the aesthetic ideal. Go and participate in that. Go and participate in that and uh, relinquish the project of life. Now, there's a danger here because these guys in their relinquishing of the project of life will often become resentful towards life and start to bitch about life and their, their writings and their theology. Christianity is saturated with this as well. This is a big issue. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You can still sort of overcome life and go and do something highly intellectual and, you know, go no-nut for life. Freud did this, for example. Go no-nut for life and hold in all the juice and channel it up into, sublimate it into higher creations and higher power. In some sense, celibacy could weirdly be an affirmation of life if you're intelligent about the way you do it. But uh, you have to be very powerful and very sophisticated to do this, a high wizard and high priest. And that's a much better identity, though, isn't it? A Jedi master who holds in his nut forever. That's much more sophisticated identity than what is usually presented, isn't it? It's much, much better than just castigating people for being incels, castigating these struggling men for this. But going beyond the incel question, let's talk about successful sexual relationships, because as I said, you're trying to encourage within people this long-form thinking. You want them to have sex together for a long time. You want to affirm, say, yes, you can have as much pleasure as you want. Find the most beautiful girl in the church or in the mosque and you know, you have a lot of crazy sex. Right? You go and go absolutely wild. Enjoy yourself. Pleasure each other. Enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy the fruits of, of God's creation. And create lots of children. Create 15 million children if you want. You go absolutely nuts. Because all those children will be children of God. Just don't cheat on each other. Don't do any adultery. Don't have sex outside marriage. Don't have a wandering eye. Don't be some degenerate. Participate in that marriage and enjoy the pleasures of each other's carnal flesh in a way that is sanctified by God. That's so intelligent. That's so wise. They sit down and they say, God has allowed you to have sex together. You're allowed to experience the heights of pleasure together. And it's going to be fruitful. You don't wear condoms. Don't wear. Don't don't take the pill. Don't fuck up your hormones with the pill. Don't stick your willy inside of a plastic, you know, a pa plastic sheath. 
You know, don't do any of that sterilizing stuff. Don't abort your kids. Go and have as much fun as you possibly can and enjoy enjoy the, the, the power of your, or your sexual creativity. Watch how powerful you are, you know? Breed with each other and watch you pr- create a child. Watch and see what you are. See what, what incredible dignity you can bring to life. Like your, your, your pleasure leads towards the creation of life. You're a vessel for God to achieve his will in the world. It's so magical when you participate in this. And the goal of religion is to just shuttle people into these lanes and stop them from doing things like, oh, cheating on each other or divorcing. You know, divorce was a big taboo in religions before. It's like, no, you make the commitment and you're going to stay with each other forever and you're going to make it work. And don't try to impulsively divorce people when things get tough. You know, don't, when the honeymoon period is over, commit to it because you have a broader project here. God is sanctifying you and giving you a sort of task. And if, if you know, if say, for example, the, the guy gets abusive and the girl wants to leave, well, then there's a community around you that you've participated in who are going to, you know, take the guy into a back room and sit him down and say, if you keep on doing this, there's going to be some serious consequences. If she gets touched, if she gets hurt, there's going to be some big problems. So there's this type of pressure that the community helps to make sure that there's nothing crazy happens in the marriage. Of course, it's not perfect. Of course, it's not perfect. Lots of bad things happen in these situations. But you can see the wisdom inside of it. You can see how all of this stuff can integrate and work together. You can see this encouragement towards stable relationships and stable families. It's obviously smart and wise. It's obviously uh, a smart way to do things. And so this shows us another first principle of what religion is trying to do. Religion is this force this structure that's trying to control and channel our expression of the will to power when it's doing its job correctly when it's doing its job correctly, all right? And that's very important to stress. Of course, religion can make mistakes with this. This happens often. But it's trying to show us that we're full of this vitality, we're full of this power, and our religions, our traditions, are trying to channel that in the most fertile and long-form and stable way we possibly can. And so it gives us these patterns and these plans. It stops us from being adulterous and cheating on people. It tries to get us to control our sexual instincts and express it within the context of marriage. It tries to get us to express it within the context of fertile, long-term relationships. And this is essentially eugenic. It essentially makes the culture better over time. You know, children who have stable relationships and families, they'll probably be healthier, which will mean they're more intelligent, which will mean that they're more beautiful, which will mean that over the generations, the, the, it'll be the ascent of the people who participate in this stuff whereas when people start to you know become impulsive maybe they're sort of super good looking kids will pop up every now and again because there's this pure like attraction of the healthiest specimens getting together in these these sex fests and stuff like this but an awful lot of it will be creating lots of types that are not as beautiful you know there'll be this sort of down going of the of the the potential of the people who participate in things like this and so this is why we, we see that we haven't really evolved to have any cultures that are like this because it doesn't actually work out in the long run that well and so what you're seeing is the purpose of religion this big first principle is to get spiritualized divinate our passions Nietzsche would actually talk about this it's to get our passions and give us a way to express them in a way that's noble in a way that's sophisticated that leads to them experiencing what they need to experience and this is where psychology and religion cross over in a very very sophisticated way psychology is about sitting down and talking to you about your passions and your feelings and getting you to become conscious of what your passions actually want and getting you to relate to your passions properly and understanding you know these deep things like your sexual impulses and your urges for relationships and friendships and your intellectual desire to participate in artistic culture 
psychology tries to rationalize that and they do often do a very very bad job of this you know because they have this cult like behavior talking to you about your passions they don't they, you know modern psychology is, is a complete joke and they don't really articulate to you they don't you know impose responsibility on you in the right places and they impose guilt on you in the wrong places and stuff like this religion in its sophistication is a much more intuitive way of doing this it sits you down it understands that you have this ferocious urge to breed inside of you and when religion's doing its job well it channels that into stable long-term relationships it channels your sexual impulses in an intelligent way it understands you might have these artistic creative um, instincts and so it will channel that when it has enough power into you participating in the artistic project of building a church or making great art for the culture and the community around you this is very very smart it channels your passions it channels your urges now you see an awful lot of the people who are going towards religion like Sneeko and the people going to Islam are actually doing it for these specific reasons. And so what this tells us about Western culture, the current thing that is dominantly promoted in the media and in the West, is that it in some sense is a religion, insofar as that it provides answers to your psychological urges and needs. But you could critique it and say that it is a bad religion, it is a wrong religion, it is a bad culture, a life-denying culture, and for the reasons are, well, what is its solution to sexuality? Well, it doesn't provide you with a long-term plan. It doesn't develop out your sexual impulses and control them within the context of a tribe and show you how to spiritualize your passions and express them in a way that leads towards life. It doesn't do that. Instead, it says to you that your sexual urges are some type of identity, some type of important thing for you to follow, and you should go and experience them for the pleasure that they give you. There's no longer-term point to this stuff. You should go and participate in these dating rituals and, you know, enjoy the trivial short-term relationships that give you an experience that add experience to your life. You should go and do that and do it so you have fun. Don't do it for any permanent consequences. In fact, try to extract the consequence out of it. Take birth control. Use condoms. And if worse comes to worse, the condom rips or the birth control doesn't work, you know, get an abortion. And all of this is showing you that the goal is different. It's short term. It's actually pleasure in and of itself becoming the goal. It's not life. It's not a future. It's not building the the something in the distance. And so an awful lot of people are really waking up to this. They're feeling that there's so little benefit in participating in that culture. That culture is deracinating them, leaving them these husks, leaving them as these 30-year-old, 40-year-old pickup artists or um, girl bosses with nothing going for themselves. They're old, the wrinkles have started showing up, their hair is starting to gray, their hormones are destroyed from using all these weird substances, and they have nothing to show for it. They can't get people who are as beautiful as they used to be because they're not as beautiful, they're now starting to get old, it's harder to get those beautiful younger people and who, who still look beautiful. And they, they have no kids, they're gonna look at you know them becoming 70 or 80 and they'll have nothing around them, they have no family. Um, they might have maybe one kid, but they, they ended up in a divorce or a breakup or something like this. It's, it's quite a big struggle for people. People are like, hmm, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I don't know, is this what I wanted? I kind of feel like a failure. Now it is time for us to begin to go into specific religions and talk about their ups and their downs. And I think the sexual question is the best way to get into this because we can actually start with Islam. And we can start with Islam because the logical response to this sexual deviancy that leads towards a sterile life that an awful lot of people don't like, which makes perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> Man, I'm making up words the whole time. Ethan Orthodox is a perfect religion for anybody who wants it. 
um, this life-denying religion of that is present in the West that gives you a bad story about how to interact with your 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 urges and your psychology that's going to lead you to be a sterile, atomized individual with no future, nothing to go for yourself. And you might think that you're better than that, but believe me, you. I want you to sit down and meditate on, is that the destiny you want? Are you sure that you want that stuff? Are you sure you have a good interaction with yourself? Are you sure you're not getting psyoped by a degenerate culture into thinking, whatever way you're thinking? I'll leave that up to you. But an awful lot of people are sitting down and conducting that meditation and saying, I want life. I want a family. I want a beautiful wife. I want a beautiful husband. I want a future. I want to see kids. I want to see kids that look like me. I want to see my spirit manifest in children. I want to be a part of a community. I want to make art for something. I want to be a part of something. They feel that. And so they go back to tradition. They go back to Christianity. They go back to Islam. It's very logical why this would happen. Now, Another side of this, you'll see this in the red pill community an awful lot, is a discussion about the West, the way the West is constituted, and that it expresses a feminist perspective in all this. So not only does it have this weird relationship towards hedonism where, you know, the, the way it talks to you about your passions and your emotions is it says, you know, just, just feel pleasure. Pleasure is how you, you should just release your passions and experience that type of pleasure. It's very short-term thinking that an awful lot of people don't like. Not only does it do that as well, but an awful lot of these red pill guys have a very interesting perspective, actually, like Rolo Tomasi and all them. They sit down and they say that the West is a feminist-based instinctive system. It is a gynocracy is what he calls it. Instead of a patriarchy, we have a gynocracy. And what they mean by this is that the structure of Western culture right now is actually about castrating male instincts, about taking male instincts and suppressing them, and instead rewarding female instincts and allowing female instincts to express themselves in, in the best way. And so wrote like these are pretty extreme takes, but again, they're fascinating. The premise of what Rollo is saying is that if you look at the whole structure of Western society, maybe you're going to be paranoid where you're starting to see this stuff. It seems like the entire thing is built to create these, these 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 liberal norms that allow, you know, the death cult norms, I guess you could call them, that allow women to go out and they can go and get impregnated by the alpha chat in these like impulsive sexual trysts where there's this beautiful handsome chiseled jaw superman and he's you know looks maxed out of it walking around he's like an uberman she's listening to uber boy all day he's in the gym he's like lifting his weights he's absolutely jacked out of his mind he's clearly a specimen his sperm is clearly virile he's he's avoiding all bpas he's making sure his hormones are are top notch and he's he's clearly a he's got a massive brain he's like read about all this advanced literature and women can go out and they can breed with this guy and they can go and go back to a hotel room and have this guy come inside them with no condom all of a sudden all the things all the conventions you know use the condom use birth control all this stuff goes out the window and this can happen and he's like you know i want i want you i want you your spirit inside of me i want to host your child i feel something inside of you that i want this is the alpha male as they would say in the red pill space and then then what would happen back at home is that uh, she would actually be married, perhaps, or she would have a guy. But this marriage is not the traditional religious marriage. We'll get into this in a moment. No, this marriage is essentially creating a little cuckold provider, a little beta male that she can have. So she might give him some pity sex every now and again. It's not very passionate. It's like very, very quick. She has a lot of headaches in the evenings. And this guy is um, has no authority in this relationship. The, the religious community doesn't give him any authority because the religious community is so weak. 
And so he's sort of, you know, happy to get the crumbs off the table. He's happy to have any sex at all. And he goes to work and he runs the household and he builds the family. And she probably has a kid by an alpha male. And then she gives him like a sort of condolence prize beta male kid. Or there's many instances where you'd see, like I've heard loads of stories and you'll see these stories show up all the time where, you know, like people will grow up. They will uh, have, a, have a family. It'll be like a nice Christian guy. He has this beautiful family. And then DNA tests came in the last 10, 20 years. And then, you know, people are doing these DNA tests and all these stories come out of like this guy raised these kids. And it turns out that his, like, his old friend was actually the father of all the kids and the wife was having an affair with him the whole time. And it's just devastating, you know, to see this type of stuff. But the hard, firm realities of genetics show that these things actually go on. And you see all these statistics that these guys talk about, about, you know, in the past, Every single woman procreated on average, but only one in every two men would procreate, basically. So it's like half of all men would go without procreating. And sometimes they might have even been these type of cuckold relationships for all you know. And um, of course, if you're a man and you get upset about this and you start to throw a tantrum or maybe you just like break, you know, your wife is giving you hassle and she's bullying you around or something like this or she's not right for you or something like this. And you try to you try to get the community to help you like the community is not really going to side with you. Maybe you try to get a divorce then or something like this. And then what will happen is you'll get brought into the divorce courts and then you'll get divorce raped. And so this is the worst thing that can happen for you. You know, you're pulled out. The divorce says not a chance you're getting the you're getting the kids or whatever. You have to pay alimony. You can only see the kids for, you know, five hours a day. God knows if they're even your kids. You're not legally allowed to get a DNA test like in France or else you go to prison. And then you're forced to pay this woman. And then what she does is she moves in the alpha male and then he, he lives in your house with your wife and he probably impregnates her again. And then you're stuck paying, living in another house single single guy seeing your kids once and once in a while paying for this woman to do this type of thing and you look at all this and uh, like these guys are basically saying that's horrific that is unbelievable that can't be right that is a tragedy that that's going on but these red pill guys would say quite clearly like that's the reason why something like this happens is because the structure of all these social institutions that are designed to get us to control our passions seem to be really focused on restricting male passions and sort of liberating female passions in some way and this leads to this terrible 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 incentive and imbalance the divorce courts are bad for you the sexual market is not that great you know like girls can go onto instagram and if she's pretty enough she can get all these options of course this is not a, this binary thing there's lots of girls who really struggle in the modern world as well i don't want to make it sound like you know girls don't have a tough eater um, and of course girls will go into courts and they will get rinsed in courts as well that, that can definitely happen too especially if the guy is like you know rich and he has this very very powerful lawyer he might have a good chance of like rinsing her if he's if he's depends on how things go but generally speaking you do actually see things like this and this is showing that the institution of marriage is is not that effective it doesn't really you know balance the genders out and impose standards to make sure that these relationships work out instead it seems like it kind of implodes and it collapses and it seems like these you know the the, the women can rinse these dudes and and cause these very very big problems so, so an awful lot of people are waking up to stuff like this an awful lot of these red pill guys are talking about this and you see an awful lot of uh, other consequences with this as well you look at younger girls perhaps not girls in marriages and their moral constitution their makeup is quite crazy when you think about it like you'll meet a girl who's in her she's 26 and she's had 50 men you know she's had 50 boyfriends or something like this and you hear about this and you kind of think about you know your grandmother she was probably only with your grandfather 
and then you have this these girls and they have like they've been through 50 people and you think to yourself that's a bit weird <laughs> like is that really that doesn't that's not traditional let's put it this way and does this have effects on a girl can this cause like damage to a girl first of all does she, does she have struggle struggles pair bonding there's a probably good chance she does how could she really fall in love with you when she's been with so many other people does that not distort her a little bit surely it must have some effect of course a lot of biology comes out about this check out microchimerism if you're feeling scared check this stuff out do not look it up do not look that stuff up but you check out these things and you see oh god wait a second these things seem like they do have an effect there's some t- statistics that come out that you know if a girl has um, if she's a virgin she's way more likely to, to, to not to get divorced it's like you know maybe 10% of a chance that she'll get divorced if she has one partner it goes up to 20% if she has two partners it goes up to 40% and then if she, basically if she has 10 partners it's almost guaranteed it's like 90% that she's gonna get divorced or something like this so you see these statistics going around and you think to yourself wait a second um, all this this girl going through college and going on the carousel as they say this rinses her this kind of destroys her a little bit and then she comes out and she's not really fit to be a long term stable partner that you can build a marriage with and if you build a marriage with her because she can't pair bond she can't stay long term she'll end up getting divorced with you and then you'll end up rinsed and deracinated and all this and of course it's not it's not like men are innocent of this as well it's like modern western culture seems to turn men into these emasculated soy boys you see the pickup artist thing an awful lot where again you get these 40 year olds I, I like i've met people like this before and it's as pathetic as anything people would slander and um, women with you know you meet these dudes they're in their 40s you can see the signs of aging on them and they're still running around you know talking to girls and stuff like this as if there's some 20 year old on a crusade like I actually think pickup is a good thing for a young guy to focus on more specifically getting him to overcome his social fear and talk to girls a lot of dudes struggle with this stuff I've spoken to a lot of dudes who have issues with this I think it's a really good thing for guys to overcome that fear because ultimately you as the man you're the instigator you need to be brave but you then you come across not a lot an awful lot of guys who you know maybe don't they're 40 and they're not they're still doing stuff like this there's still a little boy running around a shopping center talking to like randomers it's ju- it's just there's something really off about that it's like a man child type thing it's, it just doesn't doesn't really really make sense it's, it's it's a weird modern thing that you see showing up and because there's so little responsibility in mod- modern life these guys can get away with living like this and they they can't sit and uh, sit down and understand that they should be building things they should be building something long term they're, they're reaching 40 years old that's literally the point of your life when you're starting to shift into old it's the second half of your life you know like you're 40 the kind of the hero's journey is sort of over at that point now you, you should be turning into a wise man where you have a family that you're beginning to plan for it's you know not a good place to be but the point being is that we have then all these people who we have these emasculated soy boys we have these like pickup artists we have these girls who are like rinsed for you know a hundred body count and all this and none of this stuff really leads to the 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 raw material to make long-term stable relationships that form the foundation for a strong firm culture this is a kind of a scary place to be and an awful lot of these these guys would see this stuff and they see that there's this feminist implication to the entire thing and they would see generally speaking that one of the things that's counter signaled the most is manly instincts overall an awful lot of guys in the pickup in the red pill space would actually talk about this an awful lot like you go out and you'll realize that an awful lot of the the motifs of western culture 
are about disempowering male instincts. Like, for example, a man wanting to lock down a girl and keep that girl in her stable relationship to build a family. And it, that's that. That's a very, like, men are possessive. Men are fundamentally like, she is mine and I keep her. And she's part of my family and she does what I say. I command her and I tell her what to do. And an awful lot of the, the narratives that are promoted in Western culture is about, like, no man can tell you what to do. Relationships must be equal. You are not going to be an authority in these types of things. You're not going to, you know, you're not building something that's permanent. If you if you annoy her or something like this, she can break out. I say, again, there's definitely like context to this because if you get an abusive guy, that can be a horrible thing. I like I've known people with stuff like this, but usually the community will help regulate these things. And so in the deracinated individual place, it becomes far harder to do this. So we start to see the state get involved. It's always these types of issues. But nonetheless, we have this problem where you come into Western culture, you are seeing that your manly instincts are disempowered largely. The desire for possession, desire for boundaries, desire for you to assert reality, to become a leader, to, to, to be a man. And of course, women are actually deeply attracted to this. You know, this is what they actually want out of men. But of course, they can't say it. They've been psyop not to, not to believe in this stuff. They, they can't. It's, it's hard for you to embody that. And so an awful lot of guys go back to tradition initially because they're actually looking for that. They're looking for the, the gender role, as people say. You know, instead of women having a positive gender role and men having a positive gender role, instead both of our gender roles are negated. Women are supposed to be little castrated men who go and become girl bosses. And men are supposed to be little castrated men who, you know, shut up in the corner and, and pay pay some woman while she cuckolds them or something like this. And these negatively premised gender roles are very, very hard for people because they don't lead towards good relationships. They're not designed for that. They're designed for emotions and passions in the short term because that's the, the, the death cult overall. They're not designed for this more long-term thinking, this more sophisticated way of thinking, whereas positive gender roles are. This is why they've evolved this way. And so an assertive man who's the leader of a household, setting orders, setting boundaries, creating a family, and a woman participating in that and creating the family and having a future in these types of things. And this is what you see in most old school relationships. And religions offer you this. Now, an awful lot of these influencers, are, I notice, like Sneeko and Tay, they have very good instincts for this. They, they listen to their passions and they know that their manly instincts want to express themselves in this way. And they understand that they want to have a very affirmative male role. They feel like a man and they want to participate in this. And this is a big problem with Western Christianity because Western Christianity is a little bit effeminate. Now, part of this is the fact that Western Christianity has capitulated to the modern death cult. And Muslims would even use this to discredit it. They would say, well, look, why could it not stand up to this rising new crazy religion in the West that is making everybody go mad? They would use this as a way to complain about it. Andrew Tate would often talk about this, that he finds that Islam is intolerant. It holds ground. Whereas Christianity is not intolerant. Christianity is welcoming. It doesn't have standards. And so he can't respect it. He can't respect a God that doesn't set standards. And he looks at Islam and he sees that place is there. But this discussion, I think, goes even deeper. I think this idea of Islam is male-premised. It is a representation of male instincts, much more than Christianity is. Christianity is actually quite egalitarian in its root. Christianity idealizes the idea of woman and man in this single monogamous relationship, whereas Islam is much more geared towards empowering a man's instinct in the most fundamental level. Because 
a woman is at her strongest when she can have an alpha male to provide the seed and she can have this sort of free ability to go out and be whatever she wants with no consequences for adultery, for, you know, cheating on people, no serious consequences. You know, it's not like you're going to get burned at the stake or put in prison. And then she can go and find her beta provider. That's her ideal. This is when we study the sexual instincts in their essence and understand what they're trying to achieve. And so the woman's urge, the woman's desire is to go and get that alpha male to provide the seed, the beta male to provide the provide the the cash and maybe you could find both of those in one man but you, you don't necessarily have to find it this way and so that's her imperative that's her goal but the male goal is much different the male goal is to conquer a large territory and then harvest as many of the beautiful women out of it as he can and form relationships with all of them and make children with a lot of them he you know he 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 aims wide not necessarily like this pickup artist that I was talking about earlier that's running around just trying to be with everything he can but the idea of like creating stable relationships with several women that produce children so he has this big roster of people to choose from and what you actually see throughout history is that that's always been the standard for men even in positions of extreme power even in Christian societies. Christianity breaks its own rules because the passions and nature are so much more superordinate than any declarations of ideology that we have. Now, that's quite an extreme thing to say, but look into the mistress institution in European high culture. The king's the Christian kings always had mistresses. This was always a thing that you see. Go into Wikipedia and look up, you know, English mistresses for the English monarchs or more better than ever, anyone is the French. The French Christian monarchs mistresses. Check out, I think it's Henry. I can't remember their names, I'm afraid, but they all have this. They have lots of them as well. Some of them have like 40 or 50 mistresses. They really, really stack them up. Now, what are you seeing here? Of course, you're seeing the male instinct become superordinate. You're seeing when a man gets into a position of absolute power, he expresses his in instincts in the context that makes sense for him. He fills out his imperative. And in this imperative is to have lots of different women and produce lots of different children with them. And you read through these stories about these mistresses and, you know, the king would have children with his main wife, who he's formerly married, married to under the church. And then he would have a couple of children with each of his mistresses over the years and end up with like, you know, 40 or 50 kids. Charlemagne, the great champion of the Christian Europe, you know, same thing. He had like eight wives or nine wives or something like this. And so what you're seeing here is the manly expression of the instincts, the manifestation of manly instincts in reality leads to these type of relationships becoming the correct way to do things. One man with lots of different women. That's what the male imperative and instinct is all about. And the female imperative and instinct brings society in a different direction. It tries to organize law and social institutions and social culture in a much different direction. And of course, Islam is a clear representation of manly instinct. That's fundamentally, if you look at Islam, it's almost simple in how straightforward it is. Allah, God, is the ultimate alpha male. So he's the big dog. Everybody submits, this is what Islam means, to the big dog. And that's a manly experience to be part of an army of Allah. It's very simple, very clear. You submit to Allah, Allah's the big dog. You're all beneath him. But because you're part of Allah's army, you get to live as an absolute superman. Uh, on earth, because you submit to him, you get the power of everything else. This is exactly what a man would feel inside Genghis Khan's army. You know, you bow to Genghis Khan, 
and Genghis Khan is the Superman. But Genghis Khan is going to lead you towards victory, just like Allah will. And then all of you are going to get rewarded with, you know, millions of women as a consequence. You're going to have so many girlfriends, it's going to be amazing. And this is what you get. This is the plunder and blue tea. You're all going to be rich. You're all going to have lots of land. You're going to be free. The people we conquer will pay taxes towards you. And you will get to take the best of their women. And you'll be get to make them your wives and your girlfriends. And this is a pretty good offer for anybody who wants to participate in an army. That's a big promise. And if Genghis Khan can fulfill that you know some guy living in the middle of Mongolia is going to get on board with that and if Allah offers this men get on board with this and so what does Allah say well he says you know you can have your four wives if you're a good enough warrior for Allah and you become successful by Allah's plan you can have your four wives and of course Islam is even interesting in its approach to this because it's meritocratic even if you think that you could join Islam and get your four wives that's not how it works you have to become a good enough man you have to be worthy of this. I remember asking Muslims about this and they're like, Steph, you're not just going to, you know, get your four wives. I joke with them and be like, here, I might convert there and try to get my, my stack up my four wives. And they'd always say, no, 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 man. You white guys think that you can just join Islam and get your four wives. You have to be good enough. You have to ascend to the very top of the game. You have to prove you're worthy of it. I bet you couldn't even handle one Muslim woman. And this is quite interesting. There's quite a lot of dignity wrapped up of being a Muslim woman. You know, a Muslim woman is a, a proud entity, a very, very noble entity. And you're not just some coom-brained loser who can go in there and pull four Muslim women. You have to show that you can handle one. And then you can take on the second and the third and the fourth and whatnot. And so there is this sort of pressure. It's like you have to be good enough to participate in it. And this speaks to a manly instinct. A manly instinct is I get to go and fight and prove my worth and I get rewarded with the pleasures of life as a consequence. I get rewarded with more women and more wives and more children and more power as a consequence of that. Something in that speaks very directly to men. And so a lot, an awful lot of these guys going towards Islam move to it for this reason. Christianity doesn't necessarily suggest this. Christianity is not giving a man a path towards that type of ascendancy. You go into the Christian world and you sort of participate in a church. And again, we're going to get to why Christianity is beautiful now in a moment. I, I, I don't want to bash the Christians too much. But you go and you participate in that church. And you kind of think to yourself, hmm, all right. And then where do I go from here? Well, you just participate in the church and you kind of get a pat in the head. You're told you're a good boy and you get your one wife, but you're not going to get a second one. And you're just going to have to, you know, hope your rewards are good enough good enough for you know just getting socially validated that's really it you know and it's it kind of stops there and so where's the ascendancy where's the pursuit towards the top how do you how do you become great you can't really like there's no there's no way that you can climb a hierarchy the only way you can actually do that is become a priest within the religion of course there's only the only way you can do that is become a priest and that's not that interesting like who wants to become a celibate book coping theory cell like that's not fun do you re that's not really serving manly instincts at all, actually. That's much different than that. If you want to become a man, if you want to express your manly instincts, you have to go and join the army. And that's not a Christian institution, per se. And you saw this in European knighthood, you know. The European knights, who were nominally Christian, were essentially living out, you could even say, more pagan ideals, because the church just doesn't necessarily facilitate that that well. And this is a big issue for an awful lot of modern Christians, an awful lot of these reactionary guys who are trying to become Christian, is that they want to become manly first, and they go back to their religion, hoping that it can provide them this, but it, they really struggle with this. And so what they end up defaulting back into is looking at European knighthood. They celebrate, you know, the European knights and chivalry. 
because these guys were Christian on the surface, but the actual Christian religion, what it constitutes, these churches, these are not warrior cults like Islam is. Islam is built around these manly instincts and these warrior cults. Christianity is a, is, an, is a bit different in this level. And this is a big bone of contention inside of people. Nietzsche would even talk about this. He would compliment Islam very deeply and say that it's built on these manly instincts. It's constituted towards rewarding these manly instincts. And for this reason, you actually see an awful lot of the men who reach the top of Islam to be much more profound people, much more sophisticated expressions of manliness. The men who reach the top of Islam will tend to have a much more integrated intellectual and warrior energy inside of them. Whereas the people who reach the top of Christianity are often going to be priests who strive their way into like the Catholic hierarchy or something like this. And these men aren't great men. It doesn't take bravery to be a priest. It doesn't take these warrior virtues. It takes you being a bit of a book coper who's good at social climbing to do this. And that's every that goes massively against manly instincts in every way you can imagine. So this is a pretty harsh critique, but there's definitely something to it. And in response to modern life where this feminist religion, this genocracy, as they say, the red pill guys are saying this, this female premised Western world that's wrapped up with this death cult. The response to this, Christianity doesn't seem like it's strong enough. You know, Christianity doesn't seem like it's capable of taming these these like rampant female instincts and empowering manly instincts. In fact, you join in in a Christian church and they're just as likely to castrate you as a man and get you to quote unquote wife up some OnlyFans girl who's redeemed and saw the light. They're as likely to encourage you in that direction. And that's scary. That's very, very difficult. How can that work? How can that be right? Now, my camera just ran out of battery, so you're going to have to deal with a podcast version of Steph for the rest of this. This rant will continue on like a beast. So now let us put down the case for Christianity. Let's talk about why Christianity is valid, heckin' valid Christianity. So Islam has certainly got manly instincts inside of it. I can see why Sneeko and Tate would go towards it because it rewards those manly impulses that they feel on a fundamental level. But there's two responses to this that I think are incredibly important to understand if you want to really make a good case for Christianity. The first is the difference in how Islam and Christianity make you moral. So Islam means submission. And Islam is, as I said, a manly religion. And its idea of making you moral is based upon force and submission. So if you were to do the right thing, you are going to be rewarded. Things are going to be all right. But if you do the wrong thing, you are punished and you're punished very, very harshly. Morality is enforced through threat, through pain, through fear. Now, the project of a religion, when you think about it in its fundamental level, is we're dealing with individuals in a community. And our goal is to try to transform these people into moral people. We're trying to transform them into the best versions of themselves, if you so will. And an awful lot of what this is, is we have these young guys, we could say, or young people, young women as well. And they're full of all these urges. They're full of all these passions. And these passions are making them want to fuck each other all the time and run around and be irresponsible and run around and not form things that have long-term consequences and long-term success. And they want to be hedonist. They want to be delusional. And so the goal is to try get them to act moral, to get them to choose to do things that are better, as we so say. And Islam would do this with, you know, community pressure 
and sometimes even threats of violence or threats of community punishments. You know, you get, get stoned and stuff like this. Now, Christianity is fascinating because Christianity itself is premised on Christ on the cross. And Christ is the recipient of community punishment. Christ is the victim of community punishment. Muhammad is not like this. Muhammad is a warlord. Muhammad is a badass. He crusades across the world and creates this empire. Within a hundred years of Muhammad being born, or Muhammad becoming Muhammad, he his Islamic legacy is basically conquered almost into France. It is an immediately fast conquering empire. And so it has that manly style inside of it. It has this force and this this way of doing things. Christianity is much slower. It's much more subtle. It takes 300 years even to get into Rome and much longer after that to get all of Europe. But what Christianity does with people is far more subtle and sophisticated and psychologically profound. Christianity shows you a man getting beaten, shows you a man getting destroyed. The cross shows you punishment. It shows you a, a victim. And it forces you to understand that this victim is a good man, or more specifically, God himself, the ultimate good, the manifestation of beauty and life and goodness. And in some sense, you in the Christian story, you are the Roman, you are the coward Peter, or you are the Judaic Pharisee. You were the person who humiliated Christ, killed Christ, betrayed Christ, or condemned Christ. Meaning you condemned beauty and you laughed at him, you humiliated him. You spat on what was highest and what was good. And when you look at the cross, you are reminded of this. You are forced to confront with the fact that you participated in the ritual murder of God. And there's something horrible inside of you that caused you to do this. You are the violent one who hurt the good, who hurt the good man. And this installs inside of you guilt. This creates inside of you a psychological state a psychological state of shame and guilt that you have this monster inside of you. And this makes you aware that you have this lower, impulsive, monstrous entity within you. Now think about the genius of this. Think about how mind-blowing this is. Instead of you getting beaten to make you realize that you shouldn't do something, you are shown a story of an innocent man getting murdered and it creates a psychological state inside of you that makes you want to conquer the monster within, that makes you want to act moral, that makes you want to control your impulses. Think about how amazing that is. Without any force, you are transformed. So when you accept Christ inside of your heart, you let him in, he psychologically transforms you because you accept the guilt for murdering him and he sets you free from that. And all of a sudden, all of your psychology is now liberated. You're allowed to express your instincts, but you have to do it in the way that Christ tried to lead you. Christ gave up his life so you could follow him so that he can tell you what to do. And he tells you to go and have a marriage and he tells you to go and join a community and he tells you to go and you know be fruitful and multiply and follow the laws of Moses and don't be resentful and be forgiving, all these things. And it's amazing. There's no threat of violence. There's no suggestion that he's going to hurt you if you don't follow it. He seduces you. He charms you. He absorbs you into his vision, into his feeling. He changes you with the magic of the mind. And he ends up having the ultimate victory as a consequence of this, because people who choose to go along with this really feel it in their souls. So Christianity achieves the psychological transformation necessary to make people good through the power of psychology. 
through the power of the mind, through the power of the heart. And comparatively, Islam can seem a little bit crude. It needs to kind of push people. It needs to set down firm laws. You know, you're participating in Allah's army and there's punishment and consequences in order to enforce discipline. Christianity is much different. It changes you in a fundamental level. As they say, your heart gets circumcised. And this is a huge effect on creating a more sophisticated psychology within people. Christianity is a very psychologically sophisticated religion. It's very intellectually stimulating for people to engage with it. And this is because it wrestles with these profound emotions of guilt and responsibility in a quite special way, like nothing else you'll ever find on earth. Now, this is important because it leads into our second point, where Europeans and Westerners specifically come from the Christian tradition and our minds have been shaped by the Christian tradition. There is no way that we can escape that. There is no way that we can pretend that the last 2000 years did not happen. We have sat on our knees facing the crucifix for 2000 years and there's no way we can pretend that we did not. And it has had an effect on us. If you even look at the modern liberal, if you look at the modern atheist, if you look at Richard Dawkins, the premises of their moral systems are all built on relationships to Christian guilt. Sam Harris would say the ultimate justification for the world is well-being for all. Jordan Peterson, the exact same, he's not much different than them, would say the same thing. The, the best thing you can do is, you know, maybe end a little bit of poverty or lift up the utilitarian purpose of the world or something like this. The All the atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins would criticize Christians actually along Christian terms. They would say that the Christians become too intolerant. They use capital punishment too much. They, he would say the Old Testament God is too nasty and mean and that he can't be seriously taken as the God. He would accuse these Christians of having these brutal instincts in their past, which they did. You know, European culture definitely engaged in capital punishment despite the teachings of Christ. And all of this moral framing and perspective comes from this psychological evolution that has happened within mankind. This is why I'm such a fan of Nietzsche because I think he was one of the few people who genuinely understood this and tried to actually go beyond it without rejecting it, without turning into Richard Dawkins, but actually tried to stretch beyond that and ask more sophisticated questions. But that's a topic for another time. And all of this leads us to something that Jung would often say. Carl Jung was very intuitively aware that as we go into this age of nihilism that Nietzsche talked about and we were going to confront this death cult that everybody was experiencing now, Jung was very aware, like Jonathan Pajot on a fundamental level, he was aware that we would need this living tradition that would bring us back to our archetypal rituals. He knew this. He knew that we needed to engage with things that pushed us towards these things like marriage, funerals, confession, participating in a community. He knew we needed that. Now, his advice was that you should go back to your ancestral religion. He was actually very, very intuitively genius to see this, that getting caught up in the intellectual blatherbraining and nonsense is not smart, is not a good idea. Thinking that like declaring random religions as the thing you quote unquote believe in is a complete misunderstanding of human psychology and a misunderstanding of yourself, a misunderstanding of what you're even looking for. And instead, he was adamant that you need to connect with a, a living tradition that is stable, that can hold your mind together through this period of, of um, nihilism. That's really what he was saying. And the one that your grandmother had or your great grandmother had is, or your great grandfather had, that's probably going to be the one you should aim for. You should focus on that one because that's the stable tradition that's in your collective psyche, your collective unconscious. That's the one that shaped the symbol language of your brain. And it's deep inside of you. And that's the one that's going to provide the most psychological stability. 
And you can even think about this in practical senses. You know, if you go and convert to orthodoxy when you're an Irish Catholic or something like this, or you convert to Protestantism, or you convert to Islam, there's a little bit of an issue there where you're going and you're joining a different people. You know, in Irish Catholicism, everybody in the Irish Catholic churches are all Irish and they're your people. And they've been through, you know, your political journeys. They've been through your political history. They have your humor. They understand you. They know who you are. They, 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 you're, you're very much like them. You're part of the same DNA block, you know, and it goes beyond simply being just their DNA. But also, as I said, that shared history is a really, really big deal in that shared culture. Now, if you go over and convert to Islam, you're participating in Arab culture and you don't know their history. You don't know who they are. You actually don't really gel with them that well. Maybe some people certainly could convert, but you have to think about that. It's that like you're, you're participating in an in intellectual, cultural history with humor and jokes and everything that's just so dramatically different to what you are. And it's, it's, it just kind of doesn't click for you to just launch over into that and think you can simply join another religion. That's not necessarily how it works. And that's something that he would always warn against. He said, generally speaking, you want to just look at your own tradition, your tradition, not some other tradition that looks nice, your tradition. You see this big trend nowadays where um, people are running away from Western religions and they're saying, oh, screw the Western Christianity because it's weak. And that does, it, it actually is. It really is weak. It's pathetic and it deserves to be criticized very, very heavily for this. But that doesn't mean that you're allowed to run away from it. Like your Western tradition is yours. It's like, you know, you've you've got a an injury in your spine and you say, well, fuck this shit. I'm going to go get a new spine. It's like, why don't you try to fix your own spine? Fix the one that you have because pulling out your spine and trying to replace it with a new one is going to be a big endeavor that's probably going to lead to more problems than it fixes or at least make the situation a bit more complicated than you expected. It's not necessarily going to make everything rosy and maybe it's better for you to sit down and engage with the fight that is sitting right in front of you. And this is something to think about, you know, if you go and you run off to orthodoxy, for example. Orthodoxy looks strong now, and they've held themselves together very, very well. But orthodoxy went through communism. Orthodoxy capitulated the communism. Ethan or orthodoxy, as I said, was, was destroyed by communism in some sense. And so it's actually gone through this period where it was bullied and beaten and humiliated. And now it looks good, of course, because that made it strong and it, they overcame that. But the only reason they overcame that is because loads of orthodox patriarchs and people stayed in Russia, stayed in the East and made sure that it was razor type and they fought for it. They fought for it and made sure it survived. And if they didn't do that, it would have gotten destroyed. And that's not a joke. Those people are what made orthodoxy strong. The people who ran away from it, abandoning it, abandoning it, basically, you know, if everybody did that, it would have died. It would have been crushed and you wouldn't be hearing about it now because it would be some type of USSR atheist communist society in its place. That's a big thing to think about. Now, look at Catholicism. Back when communism was going about and the Orthodox, I'm sure there's lots of people who came over to the West and said the Orthodox Church has gone crazy. It can't, it, it's not It's not fighting against communism strong enough or whatever. And they ran over to the, the, the Western world. But look at the Western world now. Now the Western world has gone crazy. And what will happen now is the, the, the Western world will wrestle and fight and try to figure out what's going on and it's going to get humiliated and it's going to look stupid but it will bring it back around eventually something will happen maybe it will collapse i don't know i doubt it but maybe it will but the point being is that the thing that's going to make the catholic church or the protestant churches succeed is people digging their heels in and saying i'm not abandoning my tr tradition i'm tying my hands 
to this wheel and I'm not running away. And that's very important for you to think about, that you have these incredible traditions that have all the things you need. Think about the thing we just said. It has all the things you're looking for in a life-affirming cult or life-affirming religion or life-affirming world perspective. It has all those things you need. And it's just that you're not using it because it's it's gotten diseased. It's gotten weak. But you can maybe stimulate that and bring it back to life. Maybe that could be something worth fighting for. And so when you see an awful lot of these people become like trad Catholics, I actually have an awful lot of sympathy for them because I think they're doing what, you know, somebody, a true reactionary would do. They would say, we have this church. Our church is getting humiliated. We want to try to resurrect this church and make it beautiful and strong again and make it fight for life. That's essentially what they're saying. But when people get lost in this idea of bickering about de denominations or blathering about this stuff, I think that's a very foolish thing to, 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 to get involved in. Or again, running away to Islam. Like, again, Islam is not the European church. Now, look, history could go in crazy different directions. Maybe all the Muslims will be too strong in Europe and they'll end up taking it over and that will become Europe's new religion. That would be a crazy thing to happen, but it could happen. Maybe Orthodox Christianity will swamp over Europe or something like this in America. Like, who knows? Maybe Protestantism will have a revival. Maybe Nietzscheanism will come and blow all of them out of the water and transform us into the, the society of the Ubermensch. That's actually also possible as well. There's no reason to think none of these things can happen. Look at how atheistic and nihilistic people have gotten. That only means that that extreme is possible in any direction direction there's a radical idea for you so what you see happening now is this this crazy chaos but as i said young was adamant that you don't want to get too caught up in the chaos you're not bigger than these forces you might think that you're going to make nietzsche's society of the ubermensch or you might think that you're going to convert all of europe into islam or all of you know, the west into islam or maybe you think you're going to make it all orthodox but that's just you getting caught up in the same sort of fervor that drove the communist revolution that drove the madness of modern nihilism nihilism is a chaos where people are going to try to find meaning by becoming religiously fervorous about you know ideologies and that's what Jung was pointing out. It's like, that's actually the demon that you're fighting. Is that sort of fervorous ideological nonsense without understanding that the best thing that you can do to survive the storm of nihilism is to be deeply ground, grounded in a tradition. And the best thing you can do in terms of tradition is follow your own fucking tradition. It's that simple, you know? Follow the one that you have. And again, it doesn't have to be declaratively perfect. It's not as much about the beliefs as you even think. It's about you getting life in an era of death, in the era of nihilism. That's what it comes down to. Now, Carl Jung had strong opinions on this. I want you to think for yourself what he means, but he was very, very clear that, you know, at the seat of the soul of Western man is Jesus Christ. When Western man digs into his mind and he shears down into his, you know, the things that we hide from ourselves and our shadow and we think about, you know, our relationship to femininity and the opposite sex or whatever it is. And we finally dig down and we think like, what is the, the thing that constitutes the image of our soul? What do we see inside of us is the vision of the good man, of God. How do we connect with the divine? When we are driving our car and we're about to get into a crash or we're on a boat and we're about to get into a crash, what do we say? What flashes into our mind? Do we say, oh my God, the selfish gene? No, we say Jesus Christ. Christ is at the seat of the self of Western man. And Jung was adamant that Christianity and Christ will hold your soul together in the times of chaos. Now, this is a very conservative perspective. He's saying that, you know, in the time of nihilism, a lot of mad shit could go on. Don't think you're better than it and just stick with what works. 
Christ works. Christ holds you together. His advice strictly was that all of Europe goes back to Catholicism, actually. He did say, you know, go back to your tradition first, but he was very adamant on Catholicism as a whole. He said Catholicism's probably the way. Why would this be? Well, it's the most traditional of them all. It's the most grounded of them all. He kind of feels Protestantism is prone to getting caught up in this ideological, you know, niche nonsense. He didn't really like he he was living during the time when orthodoxy was getting rinsed by the communists so he he saw that as like pr- probably a dead end at that point so he was very big in the catholic church he was like this is our church that we should all go back to and turn it into a a powerful tool to get us stabilized and then um, that's a pretty profound calling that's a pretty profound perspective like we look at the times we're in now and we see this death cult rising up and Jung is saying you have this huge infrastructure, you have this huge hierarchical church that is spread all across Europe and America, all across the West and all across the world actually, that could be an amazing tool to lead us all towards life. It's a fantastic operational and organizational tool. If we could only get it straight and get it put into order, it's got, it's already got all the rituals built into it. It's actually very much a ritualistic religion. It doesn't really concern itself too much with beliefs and that type of nonsense. And instead, it's very focused on getting the operations put into place. And it's right there for the taking. And so he was very stressing this. And this is a great, great thing to, for Christians. Like, if you, want, if you want the Christian case, that's a very fascinating one to take. Go back to the most recent tradition, the tradition of the last 250 years, and connect with it and learn to see it, see it forward. You know, see it, see it redeem itself and understand that there's great power in following this. And that's where you should be putting your bets. Now, finally, we make it to the pagan question. Now, you'll notice that throughout this, I was saying that there was this big emphasis on the need for life. Life is more fundamental than truth. Now, this is a very Nietzschean idea. And I actually noticed that an awful lot of religious people get very uncomfortable with this. Now, when I say religious, I usually mean monotheists. I mean, people following the, you know, the good book. And this sends them for a fix because... From this perspective, it validates the possibility of many religions working. And this is what we actually see in practice in the world. We don't see, you know, Christianity as having the one truth. We don't see Islam as having the one truth. Even those two religions essentially invalidate themselves because both Islam and Christianity have succeeded throughout history. Lots of beautiful architecture and art and high cultures come out of both of them at the same time and unless Allah and God are sort of you know playing the same sides or something like this and for some reason they decided all right we'll just <laughs> we'll just I'll just make two religions and make them fight each other <laughs> I'll just do this to make things more complicated than they need to be instead of revealing myself as all of them and I'll let both of them be very successful so that they can both fight each other for a long time thinking that they're right it's like God what are you doing man like why not just be straightforward and clear if God if this monotheistic one God is so omnipresent is so all-powerful surely he's powerful enough to understand how to communicate himself communicate himself simply and clearly surely that's how it works and so this becomes a big issue you know because if the function of religion is to bring us towards life and it seems like all the religions do this it seems like you know hinduism even does this to an extent well then we have a bit of an issue even if you say no christianity is the one truth they're all fake well what what then about protestantism protestantism has worked in many places america was built on as a protestant nation you know england conquered the world as a protestant nation catholics conquered the world at another time 
Like, where, where, where does this end? Where does this stop? It just sounds so silly when you get down to it. And I think the problem with all of this comes into this distinction where religions have to be this obsession about truth, about declarative beliefs, and about this object blatherbraining about these types of things. And the extreme claims made by the monotheistic religions shoot themselves in the foot massively. Because when people like Jonathan Peugeot essentially say that the purpose of a religion is that living tradition that you're participating in. I actually think that's the deepest fundamental wisdom. And when I look at old pagan religions, I've said this already, they all believe that. That's the way that they interact with these types of things. This is the way that they understand these things. Now look at Carl Jung then saying something actually quite similar is that you should go back to your living religion because it will keep you protected in the era of nihilism. And you should do the one that's traditional to you because that's integrated with your collective unconscious. And so your goal is to get back to the tradition that brings you towards life. And as I said, you go back to, you know, I'm Irish Catholic. I go back to the Catholic Church. And I do. I attend Catholic Church from time to time. You're participating in a community that is your community, literally down to your DNA. It's actually quite profound. You see how accurately religious denominations follow genetic breaking, especially in the old world like Europe. You know, the Protestants are Nordic. The Protestants is a Nordic event. Even the Protestants in Ireland, for example, tend to be Anglo-English or Norman blood. The Protestants in France all tend to be Norman blood. The Protestants, obviously, in Germany all tend to be more Nordic Germans. And then, of course, the Catholics all tend to be the Or-1B haplogroup in Western Europe. It goes all the way down to Rome, all the way up to Ireland, most of France, most of Spain and Portugal. It's quite amazing to see this. You go over to the East and you see the majority of the East is Orthodox. It seems like this sort of Slavic Greek religion or something like this. It's, a, it's amazing seeing this stuff. And so when you're participating in religion, when you're participating in your local traditional religion community, you're being with your people. And how far could we take this idea? You know, how far could we, how far back could we go in terms of tradition? Could we understand that actually much of what we do in Christianity is not from Christianity. It's not Judaism. Much of the rituals that are in Christianity come from the religions before Christianity. Christmas, for example, is not some biblical thing. In fact, many of the Puritan Protestants tried to crush out Christianity, calling it pagan, because Christianity comes from ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, December the 25th was a celebration of the unconquered sun, marking the return of longer days. This was based on astrology and the nature of the revolving earth around the sun. And what happens with this? Well, you know, on the 21st of December is the lowest point where the sun goes into hiding. In Ireland, we have this place called Newgrange. And on the 21st of December, Newgrange has been built that the light shines in on the floor. And it begins the, the day when the, the sun returns. It's a big, big deal across all of ancient Europe. This is long before Christianity was around. And Saturnalia usually kicks off there. And this is like this crazy sort of, you know, it's like the, the end of the world celebration is pretty, it's pretty wild. And it's like Christmas, you know, it's the, the feasts and exchanging of gifts and everybody takes the days off and, you know, you have a blast. Up in Nordic Europe, they would call it Yule. And then on December the 25th, this is basically about four days later, this is where the sun finally begins to show itself stronger and it's really rising above the darkness. It's showing that it's back. And of course, this was the celebration. This was like, oh my God, the sun is, has never been conquered. Never once in all of time has the sun failed to come up. And yet again, this, this year it has stopped. It has overcome this. This is not a Christian festival. Christianity grafted itself upon old European traditions. 
things like marriage. This is, of course, lots of this going on in ancient pagan world. The way that we do so many things in our modern religions come not from Christianity, not from the Bible, but something much more ancient than all of that, something that we may have been practicing for thousands of years. And so if we notice that many of the problems with modern religion is these declarations of truth claims, the reason why religion probably got so discredited is because it was so absolute in its claims about belief and truth that when science came along and exposed an awful lot of it as nonsense, as silly, as, you know, it overstepped its bounds, the entire thing got discredited. The baby got thrown out with the bathwater. The problem with the monotheistic religions, we'll say Christianity specifically, specifically, because that's obviously what went into Europe, is that it made absolute claims, got this proven on many of them, and that essentially sank it, the entire project. And what we lost with that is we lost, obviously, the religious beliefs, but tradition got pulled down with that, only because we made the mistake of connecting these two things together, beliefs about absolute truth claims and tradition, when these things can actually be separate. And if you separate them, you realize that you could have a tradition, you could have this integrated traditional perspective that has all these rituals built into it. You could live this way, and then you could leave truth to be something else. You could leave truth to be the project of the scientist, or maybe it, you know the way they do it in polytheistic world would be, you know, a certain god would be the god over a scientific endeavor and the pursuit of knowledge. Truth and the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of knowledge and science doesn't have to be tied to the ritual traditions that bring us towards life. These things don't have to be this way. And might this be the greatest case for a return to European paganism, to our ancestral religions or our ancestral traditions. These don't have these extreme truth claims. The truth can still be the realm of, you could say, intellectuals, but the pursuit of tradition and ritual can be given to something like religion, and it can be understood for the sophistication of what it does. These pagan religions have our festivals like Christmas and Easter. They have the institutions of marriage. They have communities built into them. They have all these things. They have a respect for nature. They have all of these instincts wrapped up together. They lead towards life and they don't premise themselves on having to say any crazy declarations about belief they don't premise themselves on falling or failing because you don't believe things a certain way in fact the romans their approach to paganism they had something called the roman interpretation or the greek interpretation was essentially like what we would call comparative mythology it was very intellectually dynamic and open and stylish and sophisticated. It was able to integrate a broad amount of different religious beliefs with no real care for what people claim to be true as long as their traditions were followed. And the last idea I'll say about this is the question of the oversoul, the question of the focus of God. Nietzsche would talk about this in The Antichrist. And you've probably already heard this off somebody like Jordan Peterson. God is a collective manifestation of the will of a tribe of people. In a city, all the people's collective energy and organizational capacity is abstracted up into this giant entity, which we call the God of the city. And then you do this for an entire people, an entire nation. You have a God over this nation. And we like to say stuff like, all right, there's some abstract God out there in the world. But it seems like most religions organize themselves into genetic gods, the God of the the Arabs and of the Arab world is Allah. The God of the Europeans is still a European God. The Catholic God in the Catholic countries is called Deus, which is obviously a version of Zeus. Even us Irish in our natural Gaelic language, we would call our God Dia, which is again is a version of Deus or Zeus. Does this mean that 
we're not worshiping Yahweh. I think Yahweh is quite straightforward that he wants to be worshipped as Yahweh in the Bible, but we keep calling him Zeus. Why are we doing that? And of course, the word God comes from a Nordic conception of good. And some people even think it came from Godin down in the Lombard region, which actually means Woden. Godin is Woden. So maybe God is an expression of this. All the Nordic states use the same categorization. They call him God, or some version of God or God or something like this. And over in the Slavic world, you have the same conception. Even in Slavic Poland, which is Catholic, it still calls God by the old Slavic word for the divine, which is Bog or Ba. And you see this in Russia and Ukraine. They all use this conception. Why are we calling them these ancestral names? That's a very interesting question. Well, I think it comes down to this Jungian idea of the collective unconscious, the fact that we are connected to our tribe. We are connected to our people. We are a part of them. And when we are worshipping the divine, in some sense, we're feeding energy into that unified collective. I'm in some sense connected to all the Irish people. And so when I'm thinking about drink, there's probably a lot of Irish people thinking about drink as well. And so we all go down to the pub and get hammered. There's some type of unity going on there. And even the God of the Bible was the God of his chosen people. He chose the Israelites. He chose the Hebrews because he was the God for them. And my point here is very similar to what Jung was saying earlier. You have your natural tradition. You have your natural oversoul where you're connected to your collective of people. And there's a lot of power for you to harvest out of this. Your nation is something you should be connected with. You can draw a great amount of intellectual power, cultural power, your accent, your style, your way of doing things, your way of talking, your way of thinking. An awful lot of this comes from your people. It's a very significant part of who you are. And of course, having a representation, an honest representation of an oversoul that reflects that, I think is quite important. And so I can see the pagan case. I can see why these people want us to go back to these ancestral religions. It makes sense. Now, there is, of course, an atheist and perhaps even a Nietzschean take to all this. In some sense, you could say what I'm presenting is atheist because I'm not talking to you about beliefs. I'm not talking to you about the meaning of the divine. In fact, lots of religious people would listen to this and consider it horrible, consider it a complete materialistic take that sterilizes the divine side out of it. And in some sense, that actually is the atheist perspective to try to shear out all the religious beliefs and the belief in the divine and the spiritual powers and try to look at it in a rational, down-to-earth, materialistic, functional, psychological way. That's actually how you could understand the purpose of these religions. And the principles that are important is, does this culture and belief system and structure and organizational tools serve life? That's ultimately what Nietzsche would be asking if you see people going along with these things. That's really what it comes down to. And I think overall, I've given you this view of it. Nietzsche would also consider himself a perspectivist. So he'd be able to see that you could actually look at the world in lots of different lenses. There's no reason for you to have, you know, a firm ideological belief and think that that matters per se. And he would actually highly encourage you to be able to look at these things dynamically, like what I'm trying to do here, show you the perspective from Islam, show you the perspective from Christianity, show you the perspective from the pagans, and help you, first of all, see the shared principles among them all. And maybe that allows you to create something new, or at the very least, see the the dignity in each of them through their reflections and allow you to make a choice if you're deciding to go whatever which direction. Fundamentally, I don't want you to believe anything. I want you to see. I want you to learn to think. I want you to learn to figure it out for yourself. 
And um, that might be the most Nietzschean thing of all. That might be, you know, this might be Nietzsche in practice that we're demonstrating right here. So I'm going to wrap it up there. I hope the juice has been flowing out your eyes. I hope your face exploded. I hope you feel the astral power shuttling through your brain. I hope you feel the angels rising out of the ground, singing your praises, calling you up towards the Lord, asking you to reach towards life. I hope you feel the power and I send you love. I will talk to you later, you juicy, juicy boyos. Stay juicy and bye-bye.